0: You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. If you got your Bibles, I hope you do, I know you do, turn to 1 John chapter 2, and we're going to be in the first six verses this morning. And Pastor Tyler did a fantastic job last week of bringing us a message from 1 John chapter 1. It only seemed appropriate to continue in this great letter from our friend John, But as you're turning there, you can put your finger in it, and uh, I just wanted to challenge you with a question as we start. I want you to ponder this thought, okay? Have you ever struggled with doubt? Have you ever doubted? And maybe more specifically, have you ever struggled with doubting your own salvation? I know that's like a heavy question maybe to start out today, but have you ever heard like a gospel message that just got to your heart? or maybe you had a conversation with someone or maybe you were walking and following the Lord and then temptation came in and you found yourself giving in to sin and then you lie awake at night and you start to doubt your own salvation. You start to think, have I done all that I need to do? Am I actually saved? Do I know that if I die right now, I'm gonna go to heaven? Can we know? As you think about those questions for just a minute, I wanna introduce you Uh, to someone. I've talked about this person before, but he's ministered to me. He's um, a faithful pastor and theologian uh, of our history. Charles Spurgeon, you've heard of him. But I want you to listen to some of the things that he's accomplished in his lifetime, okay? Uh, It's said of him that he accomplished three lifetimes worth of work that he preached four to ten times per week, he read six books a week, he revised sermons for publication, he lectured, edited a monthly magazine, and in his spare time he wrote 150 books. Uh, He shepherded a 6,000-member church. There weren't big churches back then, but this guy was just so awesome at preaching God's word that people flocked to hear. And it says that he knew every member by name. He was obviously a faithful pastor uh, to those in his flock. He directed a theological college. He ran an orphanage. He oversaw 66 Christian charities, not to mention he had a wife and kids, and it's said that he never neglected them for the sake of ministry. He died at age 57. Obviously, this guy was not perfect, but he must have been related to Superman or something (laughs) because he makes me feel like I did nothing so far, right? (laughs) But did you know this about Charles Spurgeon? He actually doubted his own salvation at times. He found himself in deep depression at times, wondering if he was even a child of God. Maybe the Lord just commissioned him to preach so others could become children of God, and he himself wasn't one. Doesn't that just sound absurd? And yet that is what doubt can do to the finite human being, right? It was recorded in his journal this statement, it seems to me that doubt is worse than trial. I would sooner suffer any affliction. And we know that he went through some tough times. He lost children at young ages. Uh, He suffered with diseases and sickness, but he would rather suffer any of that affliction than be left to question the gospel or his own interest in it. And if a guy like Charles Spurgeon could struggle with doubt and the assurance of his faith, I wouldn't be very surprised if some people here today struggle with the same thing. I think if we could see into the thoughts of people in our church and hear the conversations surrounding salvation among husbands and wives and children and parents, the results of those that we consider strong Christians who struggle with knowing they are saved would be somewhat shocking to us. And I've seen it as a pastor in this church even, you know, I've seen people who respond. Maybe you responded to the gospel message here in this church or at another church or yeah, you had an experience where you went away somewhere in this like mountaintop experience where the Lord met you and you come back and you start to walk with the Lord and you, you proclaim, I need to get baptized and I need to tell everyone that I'm going to follow Jesus. And then you start to live your life and you start to walk. And then a few years down the road, you have another big experience with the Lord. Praise Jesus. And you respond to the gospel again, and you start to question the legitimacy of your first time. And then maybe you go through the motions again, and you come forward, and you say, hey, I need to get baptized, this time's for real, the last time wasn't. And look, that's okay, some of you may actually have that story, and that's totally cool, because you only know your heart between you and God, right? And you need to make sure that you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, but hopefully, as Christians, we will have small experiences where the Lord draws us and calls us over and over again in our life here on this earth. And can we base our salvation not on the experiences that we have but on a security of knowing that Christ has saved us? The title of today's message is that we may know And I wanna read to you what I believe is the overarching verse of this entire letter from John. Before we get into 1 John chapter two, just listen to this verse. He sums up the entire letter in chapter five and John writes this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If we believe the entire counsel of God's word, if we believe every word to prove true, then I, along with John this morning, say that it is possible to know that you are saved. And it's in that topic that we're gonna dig in this morning. Are you ready to jump into 1 John 2, 1 through 6? You got it in your Bibles, everyone? All right, I'm seeing heads nodding. So point number one this morning is this, I can't be perfect, therefore I need an advocate. I can't be perfect, therefore, I need an advocate. Let's start reading together in 1 John chapter 2. John writes, my little children. So right off the bat, John is writing to a group of people, right? He's writing to uh, people that he knows, people that he's discipled, he's led to the Lord, he's mentored, obviously he considers them dear. And while he's writing to instruct them, while he's writing to challenge them, he's encouraging them with the fact that you are a loved child of God. I love you personally. And not only that, but as I instruct you and as I challenge you, would you lean in with childlike faith? Well, look, I might not be your spiritual father here this morning, but I believe that to be true. As a pastor in this church, I want you to know that you are loved here today. And as God speaks some instruction over our lives... I wanna encourage you to lean in with childlike faith. What might the Lord wanna to say to us today? It's his word, right? And he goes on, he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Say what? He's writing these things so that we may not sin. Now, if I'm writing to a bunch of sinners <laughs> and I'm gonna give them some instruction, I'm gonna give them a challenge, don't you think there's a better way to start this out than saying I'm writing this so you don't sin? I think John knows like everybody in the room has probably sinned. The, the Greek word for sin is the most common word used in all of the New Testament here and here's what it translates as, miss the mark. Anybody miss the mark lately? I missed the mark, anyone miss the mark this week? Anybody miss the mark on the way to church this morning? <laughs> Bringing the children to church is a test of your sanctification every single week. The Lord knew I couldn't handle that, so he made me a pastor and gave me an awesome wife who got the kids here. Good job, babe. (laughs) But John here, more than him saying, look, he, he probably knows that everybody has sinned who's reading this letter, but more than that, he's setting up a legal situation regarding the believer and the standard that God has for the entire world. It's a standard of perfection hitting the bullseye every single time. And every person in this room has failed to meet that standard. The bad news for us is when we stand before the judge of the universe one day, it's not going to be very hard to tell if we're guilty or innocent, right? All of us will stand before the judge of the universe and the standard of perfection will be on display And when he asks if we've missed the mark, all of us can honestly say, yeah, we have at times. But John goes on to write, thankfully, he says, but if anyone does sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So there should be a big sigh of relief there, right? But if anyone does sin, one of the best but statements in all of the Bible, right? And and the language in this statement can basically be translated, when you sin, because there's a strong probability that you as a person are going to sin. But guess what? Here's some encouragement for you today. Your assurance of salvation is not dependent upon your perfection. Your assurance of salvation is not dependent upon your perfection. And John says, you can have hope even if you do sin. The probability is there that you will, but we can have hope because we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ, the righteous. That term advocate is, again, a legal term, and and, and John's continuing with this uh, courtroom drama kind of thing he's got going on. An advocate is a champion. It's a supporter, a backer, a spokesperson. It's one who comes alongside to help. That's how it translates from this passage. Uh, A remarkable lawyer with exceptional success would wear the term advocate as an honor. It's an honor to be somebody's advocate and represent someone. I think it's cool like that he's using this courtroom drama. We as a culture love the courtroom drama, right? Like there's so many different versions of law and order out there. I wouldn't be able to keep them straight. My personal favorite is Blue Bloods. I like Blue Bloods. Something about, uh, I can't remember his name. Tom Selleck's mustache. It's awesome, right? It's a great show. But when I was a kid, like I would be flicking through the channels as a, as a young child and, and like, there's never anything good on TV in the afternoon. And I would come across judge Judy. Anybody remember judge Judy? I thought she was old back then. And I'm told that she's still in business. Like that's crazy. And, and I would watch these courtroom dramas, there's so many of them, and I would watch Judge Judy, and, and you, know, you have these people trying to plead their case, and some are doing a really bad job at it, and uh, Judge Judy like, puts them in place, and he, she gives a verdict and all of this stuff, and I don't know what's really going on there, but it was just so entertaining to watch, right? So we love this whole thing, this courtroom drama stuff. And I think there's probably gonna be some judges in heaven I think there's going to be some God-fearing lawyers in heaven, but while there are many lawyers in heaven, there's only one practicing attorney that will be in heaven, and he is the son of the judge of the universe. He's perfect. He's never sinned. He's favored. He stayed in the family business practicing law, so he's got that going for him, right? (laughs) Jesus, the advocate, exists to plead the case of his client's. He comes alongside the guilty party and he defends and refutes and sticks up for and helps with their obviously guilty situation. It's not very hard to understand that when you and I stand before the judge, we're obviously guilty. If perfection is here, we've missed the mark. We're guilty. And yet there's an advocate, John writes, that wants to stand beside us, that wants to plead our case. Hebrews 7.25 says it this way. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, his entire purpose in the heavenly places right now is to make intercession for his clients, for those who have called upon his name. And yet, if you have watched Judge Judy you would notice that you got these people who are on trial, right? And they don't have an advocate standing beside them. They're standing before the judge and they're pleading their own case. You don't wanna be like those on trial, on judge duty, when you stand before the God of the universe. You don't wanna try to plead your own case. I think God has heard it all. I think he's heard all the things that people say they have done all the reasons that they shouldn't be turned away from heaven and yet there are people who think they can stand before the judge of the universe based on what they've done and be okay. If you're here today and you're even wrestling with that entire thought, the good news is this, Jesus is accepting clients even today. Like he desires to be an advocate for all of those who will repent of their sins, who will admit their need to be saved. He has an opening for all of those who will believe in their hearts and confess with their mouths that he is Lord, that he is God, and that he alone can save. And so I ask some of you, what are you waiting for? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Or are you trying to earn his approval we've already said you can't be perfect and so that's why you need an advocate when you stand before the God of the universe maybe you need to respond to him even in your seat right now we've sang so many songs God I need you oh I need you every hour I need you tell the Lord that you need him this morning but there has to be something more to it right Uh, We have this great advocate. There's hope for us when we sin. We can't be perfect, but he's there to plead our case. But there has to be something that enables him to be our advocate. And so it moves us on to point number two this morning. I can't pay my debt. Therefore, I need a propitiator. I can't pay my debt. Therefore, I need a propitiator. I know what you're all thinking. This dude just dropped a bomb of a word on me. And I know you're kind of impressed, but don't be that impressed, all right? Let's look in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. It says this. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the entire world. So I didn't make up this word, all right? Propitiator is simply the noun of this great word, propitiation. Now look, there's a lot of big theological words in the Bible. There's a lot of doctrinal terms when it comes to following Jesus. I don't think we need to know all of these words. I don't think it's important that you have like this big laundry list in your mind of words that you can say. You don't need to impress anybody with your knowledge. But if there was one word, one theological term that you should get in your mind, that you should add to your vocabulary. Let me just claim that one for you today and say it should be propitiation, all right? Turn to your neighbor and say propitiation. Okay, turn to the neighbor that you didn't choose and say, You need a propitiator. Tell them. That's right. You need a propitiator. <laughs> So let me break it down for you. This is a great word, let's talk about it a little bit. Propitiation comes from the word halosamos. all right? It means appeasement or satisfaction. Here's my definition. Propitiation is the doctrine that shows our perfect advocate not only pleading our case, but taking the full sentence off of the guilty party, absorbing the wrath and the punishment of the just judge, thus satisfying the divine need for justice and bestowing favor on all of those who will repent and believe. This is what gives Jesus the right to be our advocate. When you stand before the judge, all of your sin, all of your shame in the light of his holiness, and he's about to convict you of your sin, in walks your advocate to start to plead your case. And when the judge says, justice has to be served, your advocate steps up and says, I will take the full weight of punishment. The wrath that you have, for this person's sin. I wanna take that upon my shoulders. I'll go to the cross for this person so that he might be in right standing with you. The glory of the gospel. Propitiation's an awesome word, but let's pull it apart a little more. There's, is actually a two-fold word. There's two layers to propitiation, all right? The first layer is God's wrath is satisfied i think we get this part probably the best but let's break it down a little bit god's wrath is satisfied there must be a punishment for sin because there must be justice what kind of god would we serve if he didn't act in justice if he didn't deal with sin and people say a compassionate god a loving god a forgiving god absolutely but think about this situation Think about one of the most heinous crimes you can think of from these shows that we watch, right? Let's say a serial killer's loose in Granger and a dozen or more people end up dead and they find the serial killer and they put him on trial and he stands before the judge and the judge says, I know you've done a lot of stuff. You're obviously pretty guilty and you're a sick guy, but I'm gonna let you off and uh, have a good day. You're scot-free. Every, like, Everybody in this room would be outraged at the fact that a judge would do that, that. That justice wasn't served, right? And yet that's not what happened before the God of the universe. The God of the universe didn't let us off scot-free. Justice had to be served. And that's where our divine advocate stepped in, right? And Jesus said, I will take the wrath and the punishment. I will appease the justice that needs to happen. Jesus absorbed the full wrath and justice of God towards sin. His death satisfied the demands of God's justice and appeased his wrath against believers' sin. Praise God. And yet there's a second layer to this great word, propitiation, all right? The first one, God's wrath is satisfied. The second layer is God's favor is given. God's favor is given. The prefix pro in the word propitiation means for which shows that propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude, okay? Through propitiation, no longer is God at enmity with us, but he's actually for us. Isn't that awesome? God went from being our enemy to being for us through propitiation. This is why we get to say, and sing of his other attributes. This is why we get to call God a merciful God, a compassionate God, a loving God, a forgiving God. This is why we can sing, you're a good, good father. You're perfect in all of your ways. Because not only was his wrath appeased through his son Jesus Christ, but we've been invited in to his love and his grace through Jesus. Propitiation restores our fellowship with God so we are no longer his enemy but his friend and his child. So let's say you got a speeding ticket or a parking ticket. You were going too fast, policeman pulls you over, you broke the law, he writes you a ticket and uh, you have to go down to the police bureau and pay that ticket, right? So we kind of get propitiation from a sense that we have a debt, and we got to go pay this debt. So we go down uh, to the police bureau. We pay our debt. We satisfy the debt that's against us, right? But you're not receiving a whole lot of love from the other side of that counter, right? Like those people are not very, they're not like sending you out of there with flowers and kisses and blessings when you go to pay your ticket. Usually they're slightly annoyed that they had to lift their eyes off of whatever they were doing so they could attend to your business, Right? So so we don't get propitiation very often, and yet here's Jesus, not only did he pay our debt for us, but he's blessed us by inviting us into the family of God. We were an enemy, and now we're an heir to his throne. You're an orphan child without Jesus, and yet God calls you a child of the Most High God. He adopts you into his family. The Lord desires to bestow blessing on on all of those who will call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And John continues in verse two, he's the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I think John's making it clear to his readers that this incredible truth goes far beyond them. Like, may we not think that we're so special that this only applies to you and I. Like, God died so that many would turn their lives over to Jesus Christ. This goes to the uttermost parts of the world, to the Jew, to the Greek, to the Gentile. All of this is such good news. And so was his propitiation, was his sacrifice at the cross on that day, did it save the entire world? No. See, this is where we have to take the entire account of God's scripture into play. This is where we get to open God's word to passages that we know so well. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you believed in Jesus? Have you confessed your need for Jesus? For only those who have given their lives over to him will have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5:17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new is come. You have to be in Christ this morning. You got to be in Christ for the new life to come. Romans 8:39 says nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that's not a verse about Christian assurance, I don't know what is. Nothing can separate us. Not trial, not tribulation, not doubt, not fear, not depression, not the inability to pay your own debt or be perfect. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus for those who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. So all of that is such good news for us this morning. Jesus has done some serious work on our behalf. Wouldn't you agree? He's made our situation look a whole lot better than it could have looked by dying for our sins, by inviting us into his family, by by being willing to plead our case and show that the debt has been paid. All of that should excite you. It should show you all that Christ has done for you regarding your salvation. It's almost as if you don't have responsibility in the matter, right? God did so much. Jesus did so much. What do I have to do? You got to do something. And so John starts to shift the responsibility off of Jesus and onto the believer now, okay? Let's read. uh, Actually, let me give you point number three. It's this. I can have assurance. I can have assurance. Therefore, I abide by his word. I can have assurance, therefore I abide by his word. Let's read together 1 John chapter 2. Read the rest of the section starting in verse 3. And by this we know, there's that word know, that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so John starts, by this we know. John's about to give us the peace that encourages our our assurance. Did you catch that? He's going to give us the peace that encourages our assurance of salvation, not the peace that secures our salvation, but the peace that verifies our salvation, right? So he says, by this, we know that we have come to know him, that we have come to know him. This statement looks back on the past action of surrendering one's life to Jesus Christ, and its result is continuing in the future. You, at one point in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, you made a cognitive decision to follow him, to surrender your life to him, to make him the Lord of your life. You should remember that day. You should remember that time. And and John's saying, at that time, you've been justified. You've been called a child of God and your sanctification, your salvation, your ticket to heaven is secure in the surrender of your heart to Jesus. But he doesn't stop there. He wants to encourage our assurance of that decision that we've already made. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. I think this is where doubt and fear and discouragement can start to creep into our thoughts regarding our salvation. Because we're finite human beings, right? Uh, It's easy to start to doubt, it's easy to start to fear when it comes to our own obedience. This is not meant to be a weight of depression hanging on your shoulders this morning. We've already established that you're going to miss the mark at times in your life. We don't obey to earn his approval or forgiveness. We can't do that. But we obey because our desire is to honor him after all he has done for us. We don't obey to get saved. We obey because we're saved. It can be confusing. There's other churches, there's other beliefs, there's systems of belief that deny the entire concept of the assurance of salvation. Like they believe that salvation is a joint effort, that God might do his job, but the person might not do their job. That you can't actually know where you're heading until you get to the afterlife. Like, doesn't that just sound like a stressful way to walk out faith? (laughs) And walk through this life. God forbid that we wouldn't cross a T or dot an I if our entire future hangs on our ability to perform a certain way. Whew. That's just not the gospel. Absolutely, we obey, but our obedience is only a result of our salvation, and it's an encouragement to our assurance. It's our life testifying about what Jesus has done for us at the cross. That's why we obey. And John goes on in verse four and he gives us kind of the negative statement. We saw this last week when Tyler was preaching on first John one, John gives us like the positive and then the negative scenario. And so uh, those who know God will obey his commands. And then in verse four, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. I think John wants us to know that these people actually exist. You know, that passage, that verse is pretty simple. You can't claim to know God and live in disobedience. You can't claim to know God and live your own way. And he uses some strong language in that verse, right? He calls these people liars. Think about lying for a minute those people, not only are they lying to the God of the universe, not only are they lying to those around them or lying to others, but when you tell a lie, right, and then you're questioned on the truth, you might tell another lie and you get yourself down this road of lying and before long, you don't even know what the truth is. You start to deceive yourself. You start to believe your own lies. These people have deceived themselves into thinking they can stand before God based on their performance rather than Christ's propitiation. These people should be concerned, but they're not concerned because their desire is not to please God, because their dead hearts have denied the need for a savior. We've already said you can't do this on your own. You can't pay the debt, you need a savior who is Jesus. And he's giving us an invitation all throughout the Bible to repent of our sins and to follow him. And John goes on in verse five, but whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So the love of God can be perfected in those who know God. I want that. The love of God that he's talking about here is not the love that we'll experience whenever we get to heaven one day. He's specifically talking about uh, the love that was, the accomplished love that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ. The love that reconciled your soul to the God of the universe. It's in this perfect love that your desires can shift off of yourself and on to Jesus Christ. Are you desiring this morning to please yourself or are you desiring to please Jesus Christ? It's from this place that we should inform the assurance of our salvation. It's here that we can begin to assess our salvation by our desires rather than our failures. And that seems to be the problem, right? We start to walk out our life our salvation, our faith and temptation creeps in and we give in and before long, we're no longer looking at the cross, but we're looking at our own failures. And when we get our eyes on our failures, it's so easy to say, I don't, I don't feel saved. I don't feel saved right now. It's so much more than a feeling. If you're basing your Christian walk on how you feel, my goodness, doubt is going to creep in but it's more than a feeling, it's a desire to respond properly to the love of Jesus shown at the cross and to live in obedience to the God just as Jesus did, walk as Jesus did. And so I ask you today, what are your desires? Look, we can't answer every single question about our faith, but I think everyone in the room can honestly assess their desires. Do you desire to love God? Like, is that a desire of your heart, honestly? Do you desire to worship God? Do you desire to make God first place in your life? Do you desire to give him your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength? Do you believe he's worthy of that? Is that your desire? Do you desire to live the right way? And by the right way, we mean what the Bible says. You know what the Bible says. Do you desire to do what God's word says? Not perfectly, but do you have the desire to walk out these things and get better at these things? Or do you think, eh, it's my way or the highway? You know, I can talk the talk. I don't necessarily need to walk the walk. My situation's different than everybody else's situation. Are your desires to live how you wanna live or to live how God wants you to live. That's a great indicator. That could be a great encouragement to your faith. It could be a great discouragement to your faith this morning if you don't have the desire to live for him. Do you see increasing fruit in your life? Man, increasing fruit in your life, that's a great way uh, to encourage the assurance of your salvation. There's people in this room who have been saved for 30 years, 40 years, and some of those people, I guarantee you, would tell you that they have not arrived. Some of those people would tell you, the Lord's still showing me things that I need to die to. The Lord's still showing me ways that I can walk more like Jesus Christ, but certainly they're a lot further along than they were 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Every person in this room should see increasing fruit in their lives. You're not where you want to be, but hopefully you're not where you were, right? You've heard that statement, you're not where you, I'm not where I wanna be, not where I ought to be, but I'm certainly not where I was. Like praise Jesus that his spirit could help us with that. And so what are your desires this morning? Is it to follow Jesus? Is it to honor him based on his word? Is it to live for him? You can think about that. I wanted to read you a story, tell you a story Lean into this if you would. But in songwriting history, there was this extraordinary woman by the name of Fanny B. Crosby. Awesome name, right? Fanny B. Perhaps you've heard of her. She penned over 8,000 gospel hymn texts that she drew out of her own faith and love for the gospel. Love that. Fanny was blind from six years old and was quoted near the time of her death saying, I am lucky to have been blind my entire life because when I reach heaven, the first face my eyes will see is the beautiful face of my savior, Jesus. Talk about assurance of salvation. Having faced the trial, the hardship of blindness her entire life, and yet she had the hope that when her eyes were opened, she would in fact see Jesus. But in 1873, Fanny traveled to a friend by the name of Phoebe Knapp's home and because she was having a pipe organ installed in her home. She got there, the pipe organ wasn't yet installed, but Phoebe, as she usually did, sat down at a piano and she began playing a new melody that had recently come to her. After playing, she turned to Fanny and asked, what does the melody say to you? Fanny got down on her knees she began to pray, and she began to listen to God. After several minutes had gone by, Fanny stood to her feet, and she said these words: "Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. I'm an heir of salvation." I'm purchased by God. I'm bought by his spirit and I'm washed in his blood. And then with an extra ounce of confidence in her voice, she exclaimed, this is my story. This is my song. That great expression of our faith became one of the most popular hymns in all of history. It's been rearranged. It's been recomposed. It's been sung over and over again in countless churches throughout history. Why? Because nothing is sweeter than knowing. Nothing is sweeter than knowing that when you've reached the end of this life, eternity waits for you. Jesus waits for you it's like a small taste of heaven and just think about how much turmoil we face when we doubt right it's awful it's like hell on earth the opposite of what this hymn says and yet along with Miss Fanny along with John I believe it's possible to know to say with confidence that this is my story. So I'm gonna invite all of you to stand this morning. Listen, I don't know everyone's story in this room, but I don't have to think very hard to think that some of you struggle with doubt. Some of you struggle with doubting your own salvation and uh, that's okay, a lot of us have want to come forward at the end of the service or even right now during this song and just get some questions answered or maybe just pray through a situation please do that our pastors our elders would love to do that with you Uh, there is one reason to doubt today and some of you are doubting because you're actually not saved Some of you haven't yet surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Some of you haven't laid down your own way. And some of you are trying to earn the approval of God by the good things that you do. Let me just encourage you that you need Jesus the advocate and and the invitation to follow him. It's not that hard. You just got to come lay your life down. Express to the Lord that you need him. Repent of your sins and follow him. There's pastors, elders up here who would be glad to pray with you, to walk you through the plan of salvation, to answer any questions you might have. Please come even now as we sing. But for everyone in the room who can claim this as their story this morning, would you lift your voice with this great hymn? Come on.